conversations about Arab women in the West are often pretty misinformed. There's this idea that Arab women are all oppressed or they're silenced or they're unhappy or they're living in situations which don't match the kind of freedom that we all enjoy here in the West. But the reality is that there are really strong feminist and LGBTQI movements right across the Arab world. It's just that we don't often get to hear about them. In this panel from All About Women in 2019, which was curated by the artist, poet and activist Sarah Saleh, we brought together some incredible women to bring some education to the conversation. Activist Aya Chebi, writer Randa Abdel Fattah and journalist Ruby Hamad challenge these well-worn assumptions and their discussion goes much deeper than why do you wear hijab and explores global issues and concerns for Arab women and LGBTQI people in their communities. Assalamu alaikum to the Arabic speakers in the room. I'm so honored to be here this afternoon. I'm Sarah Saleh and I'll be your MC slash curator for the afternoon. I would also like to introduce uh, the panelists. We've got Aya Chibi from Tunisia. <laughs> Dr. Randa Abdel Fattah. And Ruby Hamad. Thank you. Before I begin um, this afternoon's panel, I would very likely, uh, quickly like to thank Dr. Edwina Throsby, who's the festival director, uh, for passing on the proverbial mic to us, uh, for trusting us uh, with this space and um, allowing us you know, to be here uh, to discuss these issues on our terms, I think it needs to be said. I decided that um, I'm going to call this the anti-panel, or the un-panel. Why? Because I think that today uh, we need to commit to unknowing and unlearning. What does that mean? It means that we want to decolonize some of the language that has been used around Arab women. Uh, we want to overturn some of the dominant and harmful narratives and the frames of reference. To give an example, Often in interviews, what ends up happening, and the first very predictable question that we get is, can you be an Arab and a feminist? Can they coexist? Um, not, no, they don't ask it like that, but, you know. <laughs> uh, basically, can, is, is the statement Islam and feminism an oxymoron as well? And I do believe that Dr. Randa Abdel Fattah, you had a lot to say about that. Oh, yes, that was on our... Um, well, it's happened many times, um, and... The most problematic part of being asked that question is it immediately frames um, frames the conversation as a problem in itself, um, and it immediately deprives you of the agency of defining feminism and defining Arabness and Muslimness on your own terms. So it presumes that um, any answer that you have is going to be considered with suspicion because it's already rendered something suspect and something oxymoronic. Um, and, it, and it also assumes that there's one definition of feminism and one way of being Arab and one way of being Muslim. And so you can imagine when you're in an interview and there are so many layers of misunderstanding that you need to unpack in the first question um, and they want a sound bite. And so it's basically a train wreck from the beginning. <laughs> Is there a power disparity there that, that predis? Uh, 
presupposes, you know, enlightenment and rationality and secularism on one end versus you having, you know, the onus on proof being uh, on you to live up to that one standard? Well, absolutely. It is a power dynamic. And if I could, like, to sort of give people a sense of, of how, um, uh, how dehumanising it is to be to be um, approached in a way that immediately assumes that your answer um, is problematic. It, it's as though you're conducting an interview with a man and he says, so, so tell me, can you be um, uh, a woman and can you be intelligent? So you can see there that you are set up from the beginning. So when someone says to you, can you be a Muslim woman and a feminist? It's immediately um, showing their assumptions about you. Uh, and so you, you're put off on the back foot from the beginning. I see you shaking your head, Ruby, yeah. so I take it you disagree. <laughs> you agree. No, I think yeah. um, Rhonda covered all of that. It, it's and I would like to know, um, we were having this conversation around what it is to be an Arab, and it might seem like a basic term, but I feel like maybe you, you, had, you also yeah. had some important things to say about how we measure that and define that and what, what it means. Yeah, that's actually something that's really been <laughs> preoccupying me a lot lately uh, in what even is an Arab? First of all, we, we need to establish that Arab and Muslim are not synonymous and Arab and conservatism are not synonymous. But even this term Arab, which is such... It is a very homogenising term for what is a, such a, a hugely diverse um, area, <laughs> you know, in, in terms of the cultures, even at the, the dialect. So it, it's not a race. There is no a race of... of of Arab in our, in our world today, and so we've we've kind of defined it in terms of well, it's a cultural and a, a, a lingual, you know, it's a, it's the language. But even in terms of Arab cultures and languages, like there's you know how many different, you know, if I, if I were to sit and speak to, you know, me speaking a, a Lebanese dialect, um, okay, <laughs> and but if I were to speak to to someone from the Gulf states, I, I can't understand what they're saying. I, I can recognise that it's Arabic and I can recognise some of the words, but I couldn't carry a conversation. And, that, and so the, the idea of that there is an Arab that is kind of the same anywhere you'll find people that speak Arabic and, and, and have some similarity in their culture, that in itself is is really something we need to to break down. Mm, the all-consuming, all-ever-present yeah. Arab. Yeah. Um, and I presume that that would transcend the you know, constructs of, of uh, country, of, of border yeah. and boundary, I suppose. Abs absolutely. And the other thing I don't I want to miss is how when we talk about the Arab world, we're actually talking about a geographical area that has many peoples that don't identify as Arab. So they're being erased uh, as well. Yeah. And so th that is something we have to keep in mind. You mentioned Arab is not a race, but I think uh, you've written something about how it's racialized. Can you, yeah. So, what yeah. does that mean? Well, it, it's it, there's a there's an I, there's a an idea a representation of, of what an Arab is, and everyone who is from that part of the world, including, as I just said, whether they identify as Arab or not, becomes that. Um, that, that representation, that, that image that, that, that has been constructed um, you know, of the, if you're a woman, it's the, the, the oppressed, the silent, the, the, the victim who, who needs people to speak for her or, or to rep, uh, save her. And if, if it's the man, well then, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the, the oppressor, the, 
the, the threat. I'm glad you brought that up. So yeah. we're talking victim or harem, and there's not much mm. room left in between. Um, so some of some of the other sort of uh, labels that you often hear is um, are uh, and and Sabah Mahmoud, who's a quite a prominent scholar, will say you know, liberal or moderate or orthodox Islam versus conservative Islam as, you know, uh, using these distinctions to highlight that sort of imported Western frameworks and how um, they often reduce the Arab world to dichotomies. And this stands truest when Western governments, we know, back secular dictators and despots. So would you, would you agree with this, this sort of reduction? Um, is it problematic? Uh, you know, what are the issues? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to f maybe continue on what an Arab means. But I want to first say happy uh, Women's History Month, happy International Women's Day. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, thank you for having me on a special panel that you curated. Uh, and I think it's also uh, a privilege to, to, to travel from uh, the region I come from, where a lot of stateless uh, people are and uh, free movement is not a, you know, a right. So uh, flying all the way here has been uh, really a privilege. On Arab, I think for me, um, it's, uh, it's my, daily, uh, uh, my daily controversial question because people want to box. I come from Tunisia, it's in, in North Africa. Mm. And people try to box me somehow, you know, like, are you part of the Middle East? Are you part of Africa? Are you part of the Euromed region, the Mediterranean? Uh, and, you know, whether it's in the scholarship, in education, whether it's, you know, in the UN system, whatever it is, this North African is confusing, you know? And for me, it's, it's very important to um, identify myself the way I want or the way I articulated because on the Arab, you know, dictatorship and support of, uh, of that, for example, it's been propagated the Arab Spring, you know, or the Arab Awakening, the Jasmine Revolution, and all of these are Western narratives. Mm -hmm. We have never been asked, what do we call our movements? And we call it the Revolution of Dignity. Mm -hmm. um, but also Arab is problematic because I identify as Afro-Arab. I have an African identity. I have a Mazir identity. A Mazir are the indigenous people of North Africa, and the language we speak is Afro-Asian language. Um, and other layers, you know, I'm Maghrebian, which is, you know, the Maghreb is these neighbor countries that share similar cuisine. We don't eat hummus and falafel, you know, we eat couscous. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so when people assume, like, oh, you, you have shawarma and hummus, like, no, 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 we have couscous. Um, and we share our wedding tradition, all of that. But, but I'm also a, an Arabized Arab, because Arabs conquered North Africa, and uh, we have been Arabized and Islamized. So I have a very complex uh, identity that I am embracing, and, I'm, and I feel its richness. You know, when people see it as, like, it's difficult and we have to box you, I feel so blessed to be able to speak so many languages and navigate so many cultures and, and emerge in, in so many things. I think it's, um, it's amazing, and, and we just have to embrace it. I think also when we talk about identities, um, I think identity, like the conversation, it, it can split. And I think the issue for many of us who are in this sort of anti-racism space is, is not how do you define yourself, um, how do you express your identity or explore it. They're actually quite personal um, questions. They're quite personal navigations and journeys that shift and change. The more important question I feel, which has a lot higher stakes, is what does an identity do? Um, how are you going to deploy and use my identity? How are you, what is the purpose of certain identifications, having certain capital and others, um, and others being used against you? How can you weaponize identity? And this is really 
what we are really immersed in is how Arab identity is used to, um, to shut you down, to silence you, how it is used to save you, to civilise you, how it is used to bomb you, to um, occupy you. And I think mm. that... That is, those are the questions that are often um, sidelined in favour of more warm and fuzzy questions about what does being Arab mean to you? Because generally in the political space, people don't really give a shit what it means to you. What they want to know is how can we further oppress yeah. you um, because of your identity? Mm, yeah. On that note, I mean, feel free to clap. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, me, let, me, <laughs> let me go to the next question then um, perfectly because um, I always wanted to come to the Opera House and just drop a little Lila Abu Lughid on you. Uh, Lila is a prominent Arab scholar and she would say that, you know, we use women to justify everything from border control and immigration to wars and invasion. This suits our liberal fantasy of Muslim and Arab women who have no freedom of choice. But do we in the West have unlimited freedom to choose when choice is constantly debated and balanced with the public good across most, if not all, issues? So do you think these loaded concepts of choice are really only applied to Arab women and does it deny them agency? And where does power play into all of this as well? Still, light quote. Definitely, yeah. I, it, this quote reminds me of Nawal Sadawi quote. Uh, when she said uh, in Egypt, I think she was speaking somewhere in Europe, and she said in Egypt, they physically, um, they do female genital mutilation, they physically take the, the, the part in the clitoris. But here, you, women, um, uh, even if they have the clitoris, they're banned and they're removed by Freudian theory and mainstream culture. Um, so I think, for me, that's why I subscribe to feminism. I think feminism maybe with an S as well, because it's a lot of uh, ways of seeing feminisms. But um, it's yes, it's about gender equality and equal rights and equal opportunity, but for me, the ultimate of it is about freedom. It's about uh, who I am every day, wh whatever I, however I speak, whatever I wear, uh, my freedom of choice. And I have lived one year in, um, in London and one year uh, in the US, and I have had similar challenges of how I think or how am I supposed to behave or what to wear in, in you know, different contexts. I think women freedom or liberation is a universal challenge, but we, we need to recognize that we have the right to define that in our context uh, and to deal with it you know, with our own tactics. Uh, to, to the identity politics question, for example, in Tunisia, uh, we had, after the revolution, when we were writing the constitution, um, famine movement came to Tunisia, and it was, it was a huge failure, because um, it came with the perception that, first, um, uh, it's Arab women against Islam, and, uh, and so we are here, you know, Arab women, by definition, are submissive and oppressed, and we're here to, to protect them. But also, um, it pushed for identity politics, which the conservatives themselves do. So they justify everything around religion and culture. But at that historic moment in Tunisia, we were trying to move from identity politics and focus on women issue as a political social issue. Focus on how we're going to write the constitution, have women in, uh, you know, running for office, economic rights. So when you, when you start putting another context into your own context, then you might not be on our team. You might actually screw what we, what we were trying to do. 
Um, so I feel there are, like, patriarchal system is universal, and there are different ways patriarchal system manifests, but we need to respect people's way of defining their own struggles and how they deal with it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> looks expectantly at me. Um, so the, what came to my mind there is that we're starting with a, a definition that whatever the West defines um, freedom as being, or feminism as being, or choice as being, is the definition that everyone has to go by. And uh, one thing we don't really talk about so much is that even in the West, that definition has changed. So mm. um, for a long time, as it has come up in the research of my book, the definition of, 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 of a woman, a virtuous um, woman who was living her life in, in the best way is someone who was very chaste and covered herself up and didn't keep company around men that she didn't know or were related to. And that was the measure, that was the standard that all... And that was the Western woman, the white woman, and, and that was the standard that all other women were measured against and found lacking. And, I mean, if I say those words now, these are words that we would now more associate with, with uh, supposedly, you know, with, with, with Arab women or with, or with, with Muslim women. Um, so there's been this kind of switch at some point when, when the West, um, because of, you know, feminism and, and the, you know, um, the countercultural movement, um, where they sort of thought, no, I'm going to shed these clothes and I'll wear what I want and, and I'll be in control of my body and I'll be in control of my sexuality. And suddenly this is what freedom means, this is what feminism means, and now anyone who isn't like this, they're, you know, they're the ones that, that, that have to change. Yeah. So on that note and very quickly, um, what in, or who informs your dynamic feminisms? I'd be interested to know. Well, so, I mean, I, I really, I pull it from everywhere, um, not even always necessarily from, um, you know, uh, explicit, you know, feminists, but, it, but in terms of, of what I've been reading a lot lately of is, well, you know, Leila, Leila Ahmed and, and Noel El-Sadawi, who you, you quoted uh, as well in, in terms of getting t into the, you know, the, the, some of the probably, you know, the key uh, Arab um, feminists and academics. But I also, I mean, I pull it from the music world, and, and I was saying this to you earlier, Sarah, like some of the, the Arab hip-hop, in, in particular Palestinian hip-hop, I find, like, uh, and the way they use um, the music and their lyrics, and they have this really complete <laughs> approach, and I don't want to use the word uh, intersectional, it's just often overused, um, but they have this complete approach where they're not just singing about um, you know, gender uh, uh, oppression, and as if everything can be framed through through that. And anti-imperialism is a huge um, theme. Uh, you know, with Shadia Mansour in particular, and, and and she's a Palestinian rapper. And so, and they they flip between that really easily. And there's a, there's a Palestinian hip hop group, um, Palestinian Israeli. So they're in they're they're in Israel, right? Not, not the occupied territories. Um, DAM or Dam, and and so they they they're mostly male. They did they have got a, a female singer that they brought on three three years ago, uh, Mesa Dor. But even before that, they would collaborate with with female singers and with female filmmakers to make their videos. And so they would make um, songs about the the way in which you know women, uh, Palestinian women, were were treated in, and and how. 
they were the sort of the occupation would be used as an excuse to further oppress and, and deny Palestinian women their rights. And but then they're also singing about the occupation and terrorism. And you know they've got this this great lyrics. Um, you know, who's a terrorist? You're calling. You know, I'm a terrorist. How am I a terrorist? I'm sitting in my country. I was just sitting in my country, and now you're calling me a terrorist. And then. Yeah, a couple of years later, they're releasing a song with, with Mesa Dor about um, where she's singing about how she feels this burden of, of, you know, she has to carry the shame and the honour of, of the family and she's treated like, you know, I'm, she says, I'm everything, I'm nothing, but tell me who are you. So she's singing that to, to a man. So they, they have no um, problem in, you know, and a lot of the academics and, and also the Noala Sadawi and Leela Ahmed, they turn, you know, their critical eye just as much to their own culture and their politics and to the Western world. And I think that's something that is really lacking in, in how the West approaches mm. um, lots of things, and particularly uh, part, you know, the, the Arab world, this idea that it's, it's all one or the other. Everyone is either just blaming everything on this inferior culture or else everything is just um, Western imperialism and... The only That's... good Arab is an un-Arab. Yeah. <laughs> um, before I ask the, answer the question about sort of who inspires me, um, uh, you know, you mentioned um, Ruby looking at sort of the West's definition of, of what is a virtuous woman, you know, what is a woman, and, um, and it's sort of its counterpoint was the brown and black woman, and that's, I think something that's been very much missing in, in conversations around um, feminism, particularly in, in a Western framework, um, and this idea that uh, our, our insistence that we speak about, about feminism within a, a framework that, that brings in race. Um, and that is because of, we have to deal with the, sort of the, his, the history of how um, femininity has been constructed. And so if you look at, for example, you know, the time of, you know, of, of um, you know, the African slave trade, um, the transatlantic slave trade, so, um, and Victorian era, so you had very high sort of ideals, Victorian ideals about um, chaste, um, you know, Victorian women, uh, you, you know, who, um, you know, their, their place was the home, there was sort of, you know, the, the, um, the, the gatekeepers of morality. Um, but that, that was the construction of, of you know, the, the ideal female on the apex of the hierarchy, but, you know, men were allowed um, to rape um, and violate um, their uh, black slaves because they were considered, you know, less than human. Um, you had Lord Cromer, who, um, pr who founded and was the president of the, um, the League Against Women's Suffrage in... in um, in England, but going to Egypt and lecturing Egyptians um, as the imperial lord um, about the way that they treated women. So, you know, he was this feminist crusader um, in Egypt, and yet he was against um, women's suffrage in London because, and, that, and that's not that's not hypocrisy. That was because a fundamental different definition of who a woman is um, and black and brown women were subhuman. And so when we in 2019 insist on a conversation, um, a, you know, a feminist conversation that brings in race, not something that as a buzzword or something that's a footnote, but that actually deals with the fact that the white woman has been considered and defined as the universal moral subject f for, you know, all time, that's where our rage comes from, because if you cannot address that, then all the other oppressions will not be addressed.
Ranjan's just made my book completely <laughs> by the way. <laughs> 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 That's literally what I'm my book's so about. I'm <laughs> excited about your book <laughs> because it's, um, it's missing in the conversation. Yeah, we use domesticity and other spaces to subvert uh, in a competitive, hyper-masculine capitalist system. So how do women navigate in your worlds, respective worlds, navigate um, feminism and space? I'm interested to know uh, how much that is gendered and how much uh, do we use them to subvert and to own uh, in, in our respective mm. activist spaces? Yeah, I, I was just actually wanted to um, continue from the conversation. Oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, where to start? You just mentioned something really important. Um, I think just growing up, I, I mean, today I find a lot of inspiration. I think also because of social media and people putting their full truth out there. But when I was growing up, uh, it's really hard to find like your ideal or your superwoman to look at. Um, and so I, I was inspired by um, Elisa, or Lebanese call it Alisar, uh, the women, because I was trying to find how can I be radical in a very conservative family, both my father and, and mother's family are very conservative. And she, in, sorry, in what way? Religiously, politically? I mean, these are sort of the, yeah, yes. these are sort of very, the very, that I, yeah. I think we need to also un unpack and explain. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's why I mentioned Orthodox, for example, as a, yeah. because there are some very political you know, uh, d deliberately political yeah. impositions or frameworks that really don't work yeah. in these types of contexts, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. very religiously yeah. conservative, meaning I was the only uh, non-veiled in the family, for example, or the only uh, woman who doesn't treat marriage as an achievement and, uh, the, you know, and like left my parents' house and went to live by myself or... Uh, dropped school for one year and, and went to travel and things like that. So, in uh, in in the way our extensive in in our extensive family, it's seen as radical. But uh, growing up, I cannot see radical action or something. I didn't even think that would be radical. Um, so when I when I read about Alisa, Alisa you know, re rebellion against her brother and coming to Tunisia to build Carthage, she's the the founder and queen of Carthage. But also, in a, in, a, uh, in a female leadership with her femininity, she wasn't trying to masculinize to be a queen or to build a whole empire around the Mediterranean. But I think after that, so growing up and arriving to a point where my rebellious in the family and around my society with the revolution became a political voice. So many people, when they ask, okay, how all these women were on the front line suddenly, you know, uh, uh, in the region with the revolution, it's, you know, women have been struggling for decades. It wasn't just suddenly. No, it wasn't. Out of nowhere. So we had, we had a mini revolution in 2006 and ha there have been a movement underground uh, of women, you know, struggling and, and a build up to that uh, exposure phase where enough is enough. Um, but because also history makes women disappear, like you can't read about, like in the feminist movement in Tunisia, we are uh, perceived as one of the most progressive uh, countries in the region. But even in, in 1956, when we had very progressive rights, like abolishing polygamy, giving women passport, giving their nationality to their kids, things that didn't exist in Africa and the Middle East at the time, 
Um, it was credited to the Bourguiba, who was, you know, the feminist statesman, you know? It wasn't credited to the feminist movement that fought for the liberation and, you know, uh, made sure those rights are there. So just to say that also, like, as young feminists growing up, we do not have these figures in our history. We cannot read uh, these kind of stories. And I think now growing up and reading, for example, hearing... Uh, you know, during the revolution and encountering all of the things that happen as well, you know, in Egypt, virginity tests and harassment and all of the things that you have to endure once you decide to step into activism, you know, and like say, I'm a proudly feminist and this is what it means, and to resist every day, police brutality, all the stuff. So reading Nawal Sadawi, for example, saying... Um, when she was, uh, she was uh, depicted as a dangerous, savage woman, and she said, well, I'm saying the truth, and the truth is dangerous and savage, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so seeing women like this to say, I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, I can also, you know, uh, it's possible that I can be a radical feminist, and that does not mean I'm extremist or whatever. That means it's my full, badass self every day on the street, you know? Like, yeah. like it's me... It's me fighting for my rights and fighting for what is right with my heels and with my, you know, whatever my I see. Eyebrows. Yeah, and, um. yeah. <laughs> and also, like, you know, like, I, 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 I wear, this is just a funny story. I have a curly hair. I came with last night. Today, I felt like wrapping it. But um, I, I, I had my natural hair only for the last eight years because also of this idea that the standards of beauty is a, is a straight hair and when I arrived to college, and this is one of the things, small thing like this, I struggle in my family because they think my hair is messy. And every time my grandma sees me, she's like, fix your hair. Um, it's because of this notion that that is the standard of beauty. And so when I went to college and didn't find money or time to straighten my hair, I just went of the shower and my hair was curly. I'm like, what? <laughs> and since then, I've been just, you know, wearing my, my curly hair. So also seeing women on the, on the, on the front line because... Uh, women who are always protesting on the front line, all these pictures, they're also perceived as angry and like not taking care of themselves or whatever. But, but also like breaking all of this and seeing all these women who inspire me today are all the young women I stand up with next to, you know, on, on, on the protest because they're just there with their full potential and their full ideals of what our life should be. Yeah. And they're, they're just accepted that way. I, I do. I'm glad that you mentioned, obviously, that there, the reality is that in, in a lot of these contexts, feminists are denied uh, you know, and erased uh, at best or at worst. And um, I'm wondering if there's something to be said about the role of privilege um, in some of the examples that you've mentioned. So, I, for example, when we talk about... Uh, what women are subjected to in, in, in terms of in Egypt or in Tunisia in the protest, police brutality or the virginity tests. I'm wondering where does class and race also play into these um, sort of these abuses? Like it's not, it's not just gendered, is it? There is, there's definitely an interplay of these factors. So I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit more because mm. privilege protects. Of course. No, absolutely. I mean, if you look at... Um, Tunisia, for example, as I said, we have our indigenous people, Amazigh, and uh, Amazigh have been part of um, the struggle and part of being on the front line of the revolution. But then after, when we wrote the constitution, we still don't have 
Amazigh as the official language, it's official language in Algeria and Morocco. Um, and it's, I mean, basic indigenous right is language, uh, but also the Nubian rights uh, in Egypt, uh, and there have been sidelines after the revolution. It's the same, you know, it's, it's a layer. So you're a female, you're indigenous, and you're this and this and that. And you, now when you are all together against the dictatorship, yeah, we're, we're great, you know, and we're all on the front line, but then after we all win, you're then, uh, you know, you're then sidelined um, uh, around the issue. Um, but I think also class is very important because Tunisia has also this, which I find it really problematic, this francophone uh, related to class because we are post-colonial countries and we're left with a lot of inherited colonial systems that divided us along these terms, uh, you know, uh, class and color and all of the layers, and uh, being, being francophone today in Tunisia, you, you can find better job because you, you speak French, you can, it's related to, to class. And um, I think why people ask a lot of times why Tunisia's revolution succeeded, I think it, because it was working class revolution. It didn't stop at the middle class. Uh, it started with the youth, yes, and you know, intellectual joined, artists joined, but then the labor union joined. And when the labor union mobilized people with all the different class and all the different layers of their marginality, uh, and also we don't forget that Tunisia started from a central city with the most marginalized region in Tunisia. So that made, uh, um, that is one of the factors why it went on to the end. When I compare it sometimes, question we all ask what happened in Egypt and I feel it was still a middle class revolution because it was just the same class speaking to each other and of course the revolution happened with 10% of the population but still it wasn't working class uh, revolution and so you, you still feel the voice of the most marginalized was not heard so now when we're writing a constitution and when we're thinking about democratic transition it doesn't really uh, matter to me because I can't put three meals a day on the, on the table. You know, you, you, I wasn't involved in that, so don't ask me now of mm. what a constitution should look like, you know? Mm. Yeah, I think that so often that when we talk about, um, about rights and liberation, um, we forget it's the material conditions of people's lives that the, if, if the feminist project is not going to address materiality and how that affects people's day-to-day -day lives, it doesn't matter how many pronouns you change if it's not going to address um, the inequalities, um, the economic and financial inequalities, then you're not going to the root of the problem. Um, there was something that you said, Aya, that I want, wanted to talk about because it really resonated. It's sort of the erasure of women from history. And um, this is something I, f I, I feel so passionate about because I think that we, we need... A, when we think about the, the sort of the, the nexus between the connection between power and knowledge and how ignorant, wholesale ignorant we are about um, the women's agency in the Middle East, um, you know, how, how ignorant we are about the role of women in these liberation movements, um, you know, the education systems, the way that we teach, teach our children you know, from my point of view, in a Western framework, about history. It, it, we are building that next generation of lawmakers, of change makers, and that is why it's such an impoverished conversation, and that's why we're not addressing these sorts of issues. I mean, something as simple as my daughter's um, 
uh, year, nine, year eight history humanities class. And she's at an Islamic school as well. Um, and, you know, most teachers, uh, I come from a family of teachers, so I know how time poor and how, um, you know, immersed they are in, in all the, uh, the paperwork. So it's very difficult to decolonize a curriculum. It's very difficult to go out and do the hard work of, of rewriting um, a history curriculum. Um, and that's why we need systemic change, because our, our next generation of students, our current generation of students, are just learning about Europe. They are just learning about white feminist heroines. Um, we are not actually re rebooting the system, and that's why we don't get to hear about people like Aya. We don't get to hear about um, what's happening in the Middle East and, and across the world, the global north, um, because it is such a Eurocentric um, education system. So decolonizing the institutions as a place to start um, to, have, to continue Absolutely. this conversation, I suppose. And um, I want to go back to something that also Aya touched upon, and I think it's um, important, obviously, to say that uh, the different countries across the Arab world uh, each have a very different relationship internally between government and religion or and government and church as an institution. Um, so, you know, within the post-colonial hangover that they continue to exist in. So uh, the way that tiny Lebanon might accommodate 18, 19 different sects in its, you know, very small geographical location, um, size, sorry, uh, it will be different to the way that Tunisia does or Egypt might or the Gulf countries that you mentioned earlier. So, I, I mean, I don't presume that you're going to be able to address this all in the next two minutes or even uh, do the, you know, the question justice, but I would like your thoughts on... Um, what should you know that what what does that interaction look like to you or what should it look like um, in your specific country or thematic experience so we can narrow it down a little and maybe provide a little nuance oh, so that was a mouthful did anyone <laughs> follow that question I forgot so what I asked <laughs> you're asking what uh, depending on the country we're talking yeah, about and, and what, is, your what experience. is what is the relation between um, sort of religion and 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 Governments. government, yeah. um, often it's, or how is it managed? Yeah, often it's it's you know bad or good, and there's no room for you know conversation in between that the grey. And I what I would really like is the grey, um, because I think you know there there's obviously a lot of conversation, and minorities yeah. would would also uh, be something that comes up. And I'm interested to see what yeah what that I looks like. To actually, you. learned Written something very recently, uh, very interesting uh, um, about Lebanon. Um, so that's where my, where my dad's side of my family from and where we're, we kind of mostly say we're Lebanese just because of, you know, the, uh, the Arab way of passing nationality on down through the, the father. My mum my is Syrian. Um, so, you know, in, in Lebanon, uh, so they have, as you said, uh, 18 different sects, but, but we'll keep it <laughs> simple. So the, the Sunni Muslim, the Shia Muslim and the Christian Maronite. So they have a... a, a a system where the, oh, forgive me if I get this wrong, the president has to be Christian, the prime minister, Sunni, parliament. and the yeah, speaker, the uh, um, head of Shia. parliament. The head of parliament yeah, is, yeah. is Shia. So that's just how they manage the. the Divided um, it, yeah. And so uh, it's how they manage the, the, the sort of the sectarian um, issue there. So, and part of what, what I learned uh, is you know, there, there is. 450,000 Palestinian refugees in, in camps, and they're not naturalised. They won't be naturalised. They will not be given citizenship. And 
Um, I was listening to a talk by a, uh, an academic, and so she was, she was talking about Arab, uh, Lebanese literature. Uh, so what she has found that even uh, amongst, um, across all sects, if you talk about the Palestinian, like why, are they, why won't they be naturalised, I'll all agree we should not give them naturalisation because they're going to disrupt sort of the, the sectarian uh, balance that we've got and we don't want another war type thing. Um, and I asked, well... Would that be the case as well for Sunni? Because most Palestinians are Sunni, wouldn't they, you know, it would not naturalisation kind of um, uh, be in their favour in that sense, if we're you know, being really basic here? And she said, well, she said the, the, the issue is that Palestinians tend to be very left. Um, they're, they're more left than, than the most uh, of the, the Sunni population in Lebanon, uh, which means economically. So... So the, the Sunnis, the politicians are quite neoliberal, and so that is actually part of the underlying fear. So, so we tend to, and I made that mistake myself, I, I kind of looked at it through this one frame of, oh, well, it's all about sectarianism, and the Sunni will be with the Sunni and the Shia, and she's like, you know, saying, no, like there's, there's economic issues at, at hand, like they're, they're, they're much more left-wing, uh, generally speaking, and that is one of the key issues of why they won't, uh, be naturalised because it's going to like sort of sh the fear of that it's going to shake up Lebanon economically and and politically not not religiously. Mm -hmm. And so, it would also affect the right of return, which is obviously a very mm -hmm. political issue as of, well mm -hmm. um, yes, for Palestinians yeah. back there. And I think that's something that probably uh, you know plays a huge part. So I, I would, guess yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to share Tunisia's experience. I think what I learned. Uh, after the revolution, um, because we were living under dictatorship for 23 years, and um, the uh, conservative, like Muslim Brotherhood in Tunisia, were oppressed, uh, exiled, or jailed. We had a kind of um, call it liberal dictatorship because you were not supposed to wear veil, you were not supposed to uh, have any sign of religion. We had like police university. If you have a beard, you need to shave. So it's uh, it's the total opposite of what. My people think of like Tunisia, predominantly Muslim society. So after the revolution, um, then it was freedom for everyone, right? And we need to accept that means uh, even politically organizing Muslim Brotherhood can also exist on the political scene. Mm -hmm. And that made me learn two things about the left and the progressive side is that they are um, exclusive and unorganized because the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, when they came, which they claim to be moderate, um, not because they want to, but I think because of Tunisia's history. It's, it has a very strong history of progressivism. Um, but they were so organized that, yeah, they won first election, they won the majority. Uh, they had, you know, m more women uh, in, in the parliament than any other oh, wow. uh, 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 political party. They had women on top of the lists of their uh, electoral uh, lists. Very organized, while the left completely disorganized and completely disfragmented. Can relate to that. And then, and then also the, the left was very exclusive. So many of the very progressive, again, related to like class francophone, you know, long history of, of uh, feminist-led civil society were very exclusive of whoever would not look like them, you know? And, and I think that's when we as young feminists, you know, that happened that clash that we, we, we don't want to be exclusive, we want to be inclusive to everyone and everyone, it's, it's the Tunisia we want to build and we want to build it with all its diversity. Everyone should play the game of democracy. So uh, in, in, um, in the constitution now, we have a very interesting debate about uh, unequal inheritance, uh, which uh, a law we're, we're uh, discussing now in the parliament and if it 
passes, it would be the first ever in, in, in the region to happen. Um, and it's very interesting debate. And you know, even in, in the Constituent Assembly, when we were writing the Constitution, it was, um, it was exciting to you know, build advocacy groups and talk every day to uh, Islamists who think that we shouldn't put gender equality and convince them why we should have uh, equal, not complementary in the Constitution. We should, we should have a dot, not a comma, so it's not interpreted this way. Uh, and it was a daily exercise, and many of them compromised, and that's why we ended up with compromised style of politics, and that's how we ended up with the most progressive Constitution in the world. So. <laughs> So then in our general Western mindset, it seems that it is difficult for us to imagine, um, you know, a religiously devout woman or group uh, living in a modern and, dare I say, maybe secular, if that's the, if that's the choice, um, world. So uh, would you agree with that statement? What was the first part? That it was well, so we find it difficult to mm. imagine um, that level of complexity that there oh, might yeah. be uh, religiously devout individuals, women, groups, um, organizing on that level, yeah. being involved front and center in politics um, and living in a modern and maybe secular, if, if that's what you know, we can yeah. describe Tunisia as, world. But is that the same here? Is that your experience? Yeah, absolutely. I think this, um, uh, it speaks to... I think a very um, a lot of my research with people about their perceptions about Muslims. Um, as I did my like my PhD was um, interviewing Islamophobes um, about what they found problematic about Islam, or people who were very ambivalent about multiculturalism. And one of the things that came out was um, in Australia in particular, and I think it speaks to most Western societies, there is a fundamental suspicion about religiosity. And in the Australian experience, um, anyone who is like outwardly religious is... is it evokes the memory of Christians' experience with the Grand Inquisitor, Christianity's, ex Christianity's experience with Puritanical Christianity, and that's, um, that is superimposed on a Muslim history and experience because there's no recognition that the histories are very different. And so when, when, there, when people see um, someone who is outwardly religious, it immediately evokes um, that fear and that um, this disdain for someone who wears religion on the outside. They're considered like Bible bashers. That's actually an Australian Term. So in Australia, you have either dogmatically against religion or you have something different, which we don't speak about, which is that it's not, it is not a society that is strictly separating church and state. We still read prayers in Parliament House. I mean, religion is still very much, Christianity is still very much part of our society. We have our religious holidays on Christian holidays, but it is very much a privatised idea of religion. And so a Muslim woman who wears the veil, a Muslim who fasts or prays, immediately um, disrupts that image of the privatised um, religious subject and immediately it's looked upon as you are trying to take over, you are trying to push your religion on us. So that's one of the problems. And then the idea of choice. So we, we've moved on from, the, from debates around Muslim women have the right to veil. Now it's the idea, well, it's a false choice. You are, have a false sense of consciousness. You're making the wrong choice, so you don't know what's good for you. And I think that stems from a real lack of understanding of how of what choice means for Muslims um, and how Muslim women and, and Muslim men, um, uh, you know, sort of reconcile religiosity um, and don't feel that there's any incompatibility between living a life of dignity and beauty and equality and fairness with their religion. Um, and I think that there's, it's because of all these sorts of things that are underneath the these layers of history that people are imposing on a, on a Muslim experience with religion. Yep. 
Before we get to our last question, I just wanted to um, ask that if you can start making your way to the microphones as we get ready for um, to take questions to the panelists. Um, and where there are access limitations, we'll make sure that we bring the microphone to you. So just let the volunteers know. So we've got one microphone here and the second one where number two is over there. So bring your questions, don't hold back. We're ready for you. Um, my last question, I, you know, I, I did want to um, talk a little bit about anti-blackness in Arab communities, and it's a very specific conversation uh, because, of course, we know that often there, there comes a cost uh, for women of color to speak out and speak, up, speak out about issues that might be happening internally um, in our communities because, obviously, that provides lots of, you know, fodder to... Um, the trolls and the alt-right and the racists. But I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about that. So uh, perhaps some reflections on our role in propagating anti-blackness in Arab communities, be it here in Australia um, and, and obviously in Tunisia as well. And you touched upon uh, Nubian rights, so it, maybe you, you might want to explain that as well in case people missed it. Yeah. Um, well, in Tunisia, actually, just a few months ago, we also adopted a law uh, criminalizing uh, racism, which is the second in Africa after um, South Africa, uh, uh, after the fall of apartheid. Um, but it's one thing to have the law, it's another thing to implement it and reinforce it, and it's another thing to change people's uh, attitudes. Uh, and behavior and understanding of um, of what that means, um, and it's it's also interesting. I mean, in North Africa, ourselves because of education, because of um, uh, political and economic uh, division as well as being you know part of Africa and all of that. There is a lot of ignorance about our history, um, and of course, uh, Black Tunisians are. Um, discriminated in the representation in the media, in the representation in the parliament. We have only one uh, black woman in the parliament. Um, we had um, in December an, an Evrodian who, who was murdered, and we made a lot of, um, you know, like advocacy around the issue. But I think as much as we need to push to protect, uh, you know, uh, people who are, in general, people who are marginalized, but also, also particularly anti-blackness. We need to, um, we need to just promote the idea of accepting the other who is different from you, like in general. We just have this, uh, you know, idea of like the fear of the other who is different from you. Like everyone want to, everyone to look like them and behave like them and speak like them and. I think it's also an insecurity of many Tunisians who are racist towards whether black Tunisians or you know, uh, uh, people who come from other African countries to study in Tunisia. Um, um, it is an issue of accepting the other. Um, and there is also an embedded culture growing up. I mean, even, even myself, I had to... Um, there are things that you say as part of your culture, like we have words like usif, you know, we say it for a black person, but the literal meaning slave. And we just grow up saying the word. And you, as a child, you just call each other like that, and the child accepted they don't think it's racist, you accepted you don't think it's racist, and growing up, you have to unlearn all of that, and you start thinking about um, 
you know, in the context of people's rights. On the, on the, on the Nubians in, in Egypt, I think uh, just part of people saying that um, many of the movements who started the, the revolution failed, and one of the things comes to Egypt all the time is failure of the movement. And one of the gains is Nubians' rights, because Nubians' ha rights have been finally in the constitution. That's interesting that you say that because often, you know, uh, elections, for example, are seen as a measure of progress in different countries around the world. I'm not naming any that have appeared in media in recent times. But, um, but you know, it's, it's interesting because that's, that's literally yeah. this t checkbox yeah. of elections. That's the reductive frame of reference as though there isn't any cultural or social change happening on these different levels in, in various avenues. So it's really I struggle with that. It. I yeah. struggle with that. I struggle with international standards of ranking our countries based on how peaceful or violent our elections are, you know? And I feel like the world have a very short memory of what happened in 2011, 2012, because, I mean, we changed the course of history, damn. <laughs> we did. Like, we have completely changed the trajectory of what countries have gone through, starting from Tunisia to all the countries to occupy movement around the world to different regimes changing in Africa. And it's, it's, it's going, like, unrecognized, and it's going uh, overlooked of the agency uh, of what happened. And particularly in Tunisia, we didn't have any civil society before the revolution. In two years, we built a civil society that saved the country from a crisis. We won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> you know, like, people spend years to win the Nobel Peace Prize. We won the Peace Prize just because of two years of Tunisia coalition of civil society organization coming together to save the country. Uh, women in public space, women, uh, you know, sexual harassment in Egypt. Egypt came up with the term of sexual harassment in Arabic. We didn't even have a term to describe what sexual harassment Harish. is. The al So it's like all these gains that we, we did, I mean, turning social media into a tool for social change. No one would do that before. I mean, I would say proudly we Tunisians started. <laughs> we literally uh, started the first Facebook event to invite you not to a graduation party or wedding, but to a protest in the middle of Ministry of Interior. And that did not happen before, and that completely changed how we organize online in the digital space, the, the hip-hop, the scene, the, the creativity, the, the mobile application that came out after in addressing different issues, it all came of that generation of 2011 that came to the street to say, you know, to, to change things. So I really struggle of like all of this happening and we're just looking at how elections or the turnout of people to election or how peaceful or violent it is and we forget the whole struggle in between and what we achieve in between and the, the transition that we go through. I might go to the microphone. Is there someone? Yep. And we'll take a brief question, not comment, please. Okay. Um, we mentioned this earlier, but um, we talked about the presence of it, but I'd just like some detail on how we can actually address it. So how does one address individuals not from that, a particular ethnic background addressing issues that they may believe are present within that ethnic community? Um, that might, they might mean for the best, but it sometimes comes across as, let me tell you how you're oppressed. Mm. Um, at, how do we have that conversation of, actually, that's not an issue, but this is? How do you go about doing that? Yeah. I'd like to take that. Do you want to? Uh, so I, 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 we encounter this a lot. So when um, 
It's sort of like speaking outside your own experience, speaking out, outside. I think it depends on when things are done in good faith, first of all. Um, when it's done, people, people who have done the work, um, it will always be obvious. If people are invested in checking themselves, understanding an issue, speaking and listening, um, uh, you know, uh, before they comment, I think that's very important. Um, so th there's a lot of there's a lot of communities whose problems are co-opted by outsiders, um, either as sort of virtue signalling to say I'm so I'm so intersectional, um, <laughs> but they actually don't do the work. And so this, for example, happens a lot. Um, there's a lot of people who now use the the buzzwords of intersectionality. I don't see them at for example, Palestinian film festivals, why aren't you coming and watching films by feminists from Palestine? If you're so into hearing about the other side, then come and support local initiatives where we are trying to be change makers in our local communities. Um, you know, step up um, and be there in that space before you, before you can speak and never speak on our behalf, always from a position of um, never speak on other people's behalf. Yeah. Have you any sorry? Have any of you ever felt that someone told you that you weren't Muslim enough or not Arab enough, and how did you overcome it? Daily. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. Um, do you ever get told that you're not Muslim enough or Arab enough? Oh. Get told I'm not Australian enough. Well, <laughs> like, I'll take the Arab one, right? Because <laughs> this is something that has come up very recently. Um, the in. You know, throughout my career, you know, I've been writing for 10 years, uh, and obviously before that in my, in my personal life, go back to where you came from. You don't like it, you go back to Saudi Arabia, which once again speaks to this whole homogenization of the Middle East because I have never been to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> and so, and um, so, so, so I was always getting this, you don't really belong and you can't critique and you can't criticise our country because you're doing it as an outsider, so go back. Uh, and, and very recently, since, since the, you know, the, the racial, dollars-old, transracial incident, uh, the, the, they've kind of changed tactics, and I'm getting, oh, well, what are you talking about? You're white, look at you, you're not even. Like, why do you call yourself Arab? Like, are you transracial? Do I have... You know, so, so it's... It, this is... It's just such a, you know... We were talking earlier about these, these questions that set up... They set you up to fail even just by trying to address or answer them. And... So, you know, yes, uh, I get it. And obviously, the, you know, the Muslim issues is, is another issue altogether. But, but often they, it comes from... It just comes from such a fundamentally just honest place that it's, it's mm. not worth... You know, you kind of have to try to laugh it off or, or, because it's, it's, just, it's just gaslighting, really. They're just gaslighting you. But it's about what, what they can say to make you silent. And, and the, you know... It doesn't matter that, um, mm. you know, the, the, how, you know, how I look in that moment to them or whether my skin is dark enough to qualify as an as a Arab or as a brown person has no bearing on how I've been treated and, and how my family's been treated and, and what it's like to move in the world as, uh, uh, as an Arab person. So it's, it's just such a fundamentally dishonest question that... Mm. I think sometimes it's not even about whether you're Arab enough or Muslim enough, but it's about... 
you actually Arab Muslim as in for the whole world or for the whole region, you know? Like, it's the opposite. Um, so do you mean like the burden of representation? Yeah, so like when I used to teach Arabic in the US, people would ask me about Saudi women and would ask me about Moroccan women. And, ask, and I'm like, Blanche, please answer for every single Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, you know, like we are, I don't know, 22 Arabic-speaking mm. countries and like, uh, you know, millions of people around the world who are identify as Arab Muslims. So there is also the other burden which is like I, I don't have represent a homogeneous group I have a lot of identity and within myself already to deal with putting aside you know the whiteness and the, the what that means when you you pass as white and that privilege I do think that it is probably a, a very colonial question that fundamentally tries to silence and divide, doesn't it? It's that inheritance. Um, but on that note, perhaps what we can say is that our identities are not fractured. They work as overlays. Mm. Um, I don't know. You don't have to agree with me, mm. but uh, it is, you know, 10 seconds into <laughs> the end of the panel, so I guess I get to have the last thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Please thank our panelists as well. Thank you.